before we get going this morning on the sermon, uh, I just want to say that though I cannot see you, it's kind of weird preaching to a camera, though I cannot see you, I am speaking to you this morning. Okay, and I had you in mind when I was preparing this sermon, and so though I am preaching in an empty room this morning, I am not preaching to this empty room this morning. I am preaching right to you, okay? I just want you to know that this morning. So uh, if you've been around, if you've been with us for the last couple months, or maybe you've been joining us online, uh, every time I've been up to preach, we've been looking at the last book of the Old Testament, the book of the prophet Malachi. And Malachi's been prophesying to the post-exilic community of Judah, uh, the Judeans who have returned from exile in Babylon, and he's been issuing to them these wake-up calls to renewed covenant fidelity. And if you remember, in the first wake-up call, we saw Malachi confronting the Judeans doubting of God's love, and then calling the Judeans to see just how loving, just how deep and profound the love of God for them really is. And then in Malachi's second wake-up call, we saw Malachi confronting the Judeans' begrudgery in God's worship, and then calling the Judeans to see just how awesome their orphan-adopting, slave-freeing, enemy-befriending, filthy-clothing God truly is, and just how worthy he is of their worship. And now this morning in Malachi's third wake-up call, we're going to see him confront the Judeans' faithlessness toward God's covenant. And he will call them to see just how gracious God has been toward them, even at their worst. And we are just going to jump right into things this morning, so let me pray for us and then we'll take a look at our passage. Lord God, May we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, I ask that you would use your word and your Holy Spirit to convict us where we need to be convicted this morning and to break us where we need to be broken this morning. But then, Lord, to bind us up and Heal us where we need to be healed this morning. Lord, I pray that you would heal many hearts today. Lord, I pray that you would give strength to many aching bones today. And Lord, give glimpses of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ to many weary eyes today. Lord, speak to us now and give us the grace to listen. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn in it to the book of Malachi. The last book of the Old Testament, just before Matthew, the book of Malachi. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, looking at Malachi's third wake-up call. Okay, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. And in this passage, we'll see Malachi address two primary areas in which the people of Judah have been unfaithful to God. Number one, in their mixed marriages. 
in which some of the people have married unbelievers in their mixed marriages, verses 10 through 12. And number two, in their mangled marriages in which some of the people have deserted and divorced their spouses. In their mangled marriages, verses 13 through 16. So we've got mixed marriages and we've got mangled marriages. So let's first look at the Judeans' mixed marriages, verses 10 through 12. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So first, Malachi appeals to the Judeans' identity in the Lord by asking the people two rhetorical questions in verse 10a. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And here, Malachi is reminding the Judeans that they are a people who have been uniquely chosen by God and adopted into his family and set apart unto him for his glory. Uh, One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 7 puts it this way. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the covenant oath that he swore to your fathers. And if you remember, this was the major theme of of Malachi's first wake-up call, where in the midst of the Judeans' doubting of God's love, Malachi reminded the people that God has set his love and affection on them in this special, electing way. In the same way that he in his grace chose to sovereignly save Jacob, but not Esau. So Malachi first appeals to the Judeans' identity in the Lord. And then, with that being established, Malachi begins to confront the Judeans in their sin with another rhetorical question, verse 10b. Why then are we faithless or unfaithful to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So, do you see what Malachi is saying here? He's saying that our own personal, individual sin affects the entire covenant community and makes us unfaithful to one another. We might think of it this way. The people of God are a spiritual family of brothers and sisters in the Lord, who is our Father. And and just like in our biological families, when one member of the family goes astray or becomes addicted or believes things that aren't true, or whatever, has bad friends that rub off on them, that affects the entire family and causes everybody to suffer, right? In Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about this concept using the analogy of uh, a little bit of leaven or yeast, which gets mixed into a lump of dough and completely changes its substance. 
Or another analogy might be how a single drop of dye can discolor an entire glass of water. And, and I'll give you a good example of what this looks like in real life. A couple months ago, Natalie and I took Ezra to the Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle. And just outside the west entrance, uh, there's a Lutheran church there which has a big gay pride flag in their window. And my guess is that this church probably wasn't always homosexual affirming, but at some point in time, this ideology crept into the church and then began to spread. And then, because it wasn't dealt with properly, eventually, you know, metastasized and overran the entire church. And now this thing which God calls an abomination and unholy has become a part of this church's identity and they display it proudly. That's a bit of leaven that changed the substance of an entire lump of dough. That's a drop of dye which discolored an entire glass of water. It's a prime example of how our sin makes us unfaithful to one another because it, it corrupts our fellowship and our worship and our communal pursuit of holiness. And then Malachi continues in his confrontation by getting a little more specific, saying, verses 11 and 12, Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So Malachi mentions two specific sins here. Number one, marrying the daughter of a foreign god, an unbelieving, pagan, false god-worshipping woman, a woman who does not know the true God or follow him, or obey him, or honor him, or trust him, a, a woman who will not walk with him, or submit to him, or praise him with the breath he has put in her lungs, marrying the daughter of, of a foreign god. And number two, having the audacity to do this, to blatantly disobey God's law, and to think that God will still accept their offerings in worship. And you might hear that and think, wow, that doesn't sound very loving. But here's the reality. What the men of Judah have done is committed spiritual adultery against God. They've committed spiritual adultery against God by, by shamelessly violating his law. They've essentially gotten into bed with another lover and have invited a false god into their worship. And the holy God will not share his sanctuary or his beloved bride, whom he is so jealous for, he will not share them with a false God, just as a faithful, loving husband would not share his wife with another man. That's what Malachi has to say about the Judeans' mixed marriages. And then Malachi confronts the Judeans' mangled marriages in verses 13 through 16. And this second thing you do, 
you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So first, we learn that the Judeans are apparently traumatized and confused by the fact that the Lord no longer accepts their offerings. In verse 13, they say, or it says that they cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning. In verse 14, they ask, why does he not accept our offerings? And then Malachi takes them all back to their wedding day. And he makes four points about the spiritual significance of that event. He says, number one, on that day, the Lord was witness to your marriage. Verse 14b. Meaning, when you stood up there at the altar with your guys standing behind you and and her ladies standing behind her and all those other friends and family members sitting out there, you know who else was there to serve as witness to your marriage? The one who providentially brought you two together, the Lord. He was there. He was watching. On that day, the Lord was witness to your marriage. And number two, on that day, you two covenanted yourselves to one another. Verse 14c, meaning you two weren't standing up there at the altar to simply say, I love you. You were standing up there at the altar to say, I will always love you. Your marriage wasn't just a profession of love it was a promise to love it was a covenant on that day you two covenanted yourselves to one another and number three on that day you two became one flesh by the spirit verse 15a meaning when you stood up there at the altar and made your promises to each other and were sealed in marriage For the first time in your life, you were no longer just you. On that day, you became an us. On that day, two me's became a singular we. On that day, in this spiritual union, your wife became just as much a part of you as you are to you. On that day, you too became one flesh by the Spirit. And number four, on that day, God was seeking godly offspring from your union, verse 15b. Meaning, the God who providentially brought you two together intended for your union to produce godly offspring. 
God intended for your union to produce more worshipers for his name's sake. God intended for your union to produce a generational legacy of believers that would continue long after you. On that day, God was seeking godly offspring from your union. And all these reasons are why God hates divorce and why God will not, at this time, accept the Judeans' offerings because they have been faithless toward their wives. They have not loved their wives. They have deserted and divorced their wives. That's what Malachi has to say about the Judeans' mangled marriages. And that's Malachi's third wake-up call. And a good question at this point is, why has this issue become so prevalent in Judah? Why has the divorce rate in Judah skyrocketed? Why are so many Judean men leaving their wives? Well, they're probably leaving their wives for the same reason many men leave their wives today. For an upgrade. For other women. For someone more attractive or more exciting or more fun. For someone who gives them the attention they crave. For someone who affirms them and makes them feel good about themselves. For someone who ignites in them a little fire of infatuation that they haven't felt in years. And do we have any idea of what kind of women would be willing to marry these men? Well, many commentators say, yeah, we have a pretty good idea about who those women might be. They're the women we saw in verse 11. The unbelieving pagan women. In other words, many commentators think that the Judean men have been deserting and divorcing their wives for these foreign women, making this whole wake-up call not about two separate issues, but about one big issue, which, if true, just damns the Judean men all the more, just condemns them all the more. But regardless of whether this is the case or not, the application is still the same. And we don't have to guess at what that application is because Malachi repeats it twice in verses 15 and 16. Guard yourselves in your spirit against unfaithfulness. Guard yourselves in your spirit. In other words, don't merely guard yourselves against unfaithfulness by you know, simply putting up a physical or emotional boundary for yourself or, or by blocking that person or those people on social media or by installing that internet filter on your computer. All those things are good and, and necessary, but Malachi's saying that it's most important to guard ourselves in here, in our spirit, in the very core of our being, in that hidden place within us which ponders and trusts in and hopes in and worships and connects with God 
we must guard ourselves in that place. Because the truth is, the truth is that it's, it's not enough to even go so far as to cut off our feet or to lop off our hands or to gouge out our eyes because even footless men can still wander and stray from God. And even handless men can still be greedy to have what doesn't belong to them. And even blind men can still burn with lust in their hearts. If we do not guard ourselves against unfaithfulness in here, we have zero defense. And so we must guard ourselves deep within our spirit. Okay? And there are three particular forms of unfaithfulness that this passage warns us to guard ourselves against in our spirit. Number one, the corruption of God's covenant community. Number two, the temptation to marry an unbeliever. And number three, the temptation to divorce our spouse. So let's talk about how we can guard ourselves against these three things. So first, and I'll pose these in the form of questions. First question, how can we guard ourselves in our spirit against the corruption of God's covenant community? How can we guard ourselves in our spirit against the corruption of God's covenant community? Well, I think the first thing we need to consider here in our spirits is that as members of the body of Christ, that's the analogy Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, members of a body, as members of the body of Christ, we do not exist independent of one another, but we radically belong to one another. Just as the eyes and ears and arms and legs and fingers and toes of a physical body do not exist independent of one another, but radically belong to that body. And we are so connected and so interdependent in the body of Christ that 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. Just like how if your back is out or if your vision is impaired or if your immune system or heart or lungs or kidneys or whatever has a problem, the whole body's going to know about it pretty quickly because the whole body is going to suffer because of it, right? In other words, if God has made you a mouth in the body of Christ, and you're constantly spreading gossip or telling lies or using your tongue to curse rather than to bless, the whole body is going to suffer because of it. Or if God has made you an ear in the body of Christ and you regularly listen to things like false teaching, the whole body is going to suffer because of it. Or if God has made you an eye in the body of Christ and you habitually look at things you shouldn't be looking at, the whole body is going to suffer because of it. 
or if God has made you a heart in the body of Christ and your passions are continually being stirred up for things that God does not love, the whole body is going to suffer because of it. Or if God has made you a foot in the body of Christ and you keep wandering into places you know you shouldn't be, the whole body is going to suffer because of it, because our sin, sin hinders and hurts the body's fellowship and worship and, and communal pursuit of holiness. Sin infects the whole body like a virus and makes it ill. And you might hear that and think, well, a little bit of sin can't be that bad for the whole body. It's not going to hurt anybody if I just keep this, this one thing to myself. But what if every member of the body were to think that exact same thought? Because then you'd have an entire body essentially faking their pursuit of holiness because they're all still clinging to sin rather than really chasing after God. And I want to say this in the most loving way. If you think that you are an exception to the rule of Christ's lordship, and if you think that you get to secretly cling to sin and not fight it, and you expect that the rest of the body will pursue holiness and stay healthy for you, that's hypocrisy. And that's unfaithfulness to the body. And you should repent today and ask God to give you the grace to wage war against your flesh and to love the church more than sin. And again, I want to say that in a loving way, not to condemn you, but because I care about you, because I care about your soul. I want freedom for you. I want joy for you. I love you, and it's important to tell you if you're walking toward a, cr a cliff, watch out. Okay? And then the second thing we need to consider in our spirits is that the reason we even belong to the body of Christ is not because we make just such an awesome nose and not because our parents are devout fingers and not because we have connections with some of the elbows. No, the only reason we belong to the body of Christ is because, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. In other words, in order for us to be joined to the body of Christ, Jesus' body first had to be broken for us upon the cross where he paid the price for our sin which led to death. And this great sacrifice ought to move us to cherish the body of Christ deeply because each and every member of it was bought with precious blood. And then the third thing we need to consider in our spirits is that the body of Christ right now is being prepared as a bride adorned for her heavenly husband. Ephesians 5.27 says that one day we the church will be presented to Christ our heavenly husband in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing holy and without blemish 
Do you hear that? One day, the bride of Christ will shine so gloriously, we won't even have a visible wrinkle. And to just meditate on this reality, no more curse, no more death, no more sin, to just meditate on this imminent reality as right now we are essentially walking down the aisle to our groom. This ought to make us want to live into this reality right now. Right? Like, like if I told you, listen, very soon you're going to be an Olympic athlete. Wouldn't you want to start exercising and eating healthier and training your mind right now? Or if I told you, listen, very soon you're going to be the president of the United States. Wouldn't you want to start learning more about the job and, and deciding which side of certain issues you're on right now? Or if I told you, listen, very soon you're going to be living on a private beach in Hawaii. Be honest, wouldn't you want to start packing up pretty soon? Of course you would. Of course you would. And so when God tells you, not me, but when God tells you, listen, my bride, very soon you are going to be so beautiful. Doesn't that make us want to live into that reality right now? Doesn't that make us want to pursue holiness together and, and seek to beautify the body of Christ with all the encouragement and kindness and comfort and honor and love that we can muster? Knowing what we shall be and seeing how glorious that thing is ought to move us to want to live into that reality right now. Okay? And the second question is, how can we guard ourselves in our spirit against the temptation to marry an unbeliever? How can we guard ourselves in our spirit against the temptation to marry an unbeliever? Well, it's interesting that scripture uses more of this metaphorical body language when describing our fallen condition by nature. For example, scripture says that by nature, our, our spiritual eyes with which we see God's glory are blind and our spiritual ears with which we hear God's voice are deaf, and our spiritual heart with, with which we long to know and enjoy God is dead. And so to marry an unbeliever is to become one flesh with someone who is blind to God's glory and deaf to God's voice and dead to God's heart. In a sense, it's like joining yourself to a spiritual corpse. You're joining yourself to someone who will not look into your eyes and thank God for you. You're joining yourself to someone who will not encourage you to trust in God when times get tough. You're joining yourself to someone who will not pray to God with your kids before bedtime. 
You're joining yourself to someone who will not hope in God in the face of death. You're joining yourself to someone who will not see your marriage as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. You're joining yourself to someone for whom the beauty of Jesus is invisible. Think about that. You're joining yourself to someone for whom the truth of God's word isn't heard or believed or loved. Think about that. You're joining yourself to someone for whom the person who matters most to your life isn't even a part of theirs. And worst of all, worst of all, because God has created us to worship and thus everyone worships something. You're joining yourself to someone who worships something or someone other than the only one who is worthy of worship, the Lord. Maybe they worship their career and everything in their life seems to revolve around the next sale or the next opportunity or simply the next paycheck. Or maybe they worship leisure and and everything in their life seems to revolve around the next vacation or the next activity or simply vegging out in front of a screen. Or maybe they worship their bodies and everything in their life seems to revolve around exercise and supplements and staring at oneself in the mirror. Or maybe they worship their hobbies or food or sex or control or power or notoriety or any combination of all these things. Whatever the case, their life is centered around something or someone other than the one who is holding them and this universe together and who alone is worthy to be worshipped with all that we have and are. The Lord, God Almighty. And as I said before, the holy God will not share you, his bride, with another lover who worships a false god. His own glory and your own good is at stake. Now, I want to be clear about a couple things. First, this does not mean that God can't save anybody he so chooses. He absolutely can. However, we should not pursue a person as a partner if they don't yet know the Lord. And, and we should never, ever presume that if we marry them, they'll eventually come around and be saved because we don't know that. And God is not obligated to save anybody. And such presumption demeans, degrades, devalues the very thing by which we are saved. His grace. And second, this does not mean that if we've married an unbeliever or if we've become saved in marriage but our spouse hasn't, this does not mean that we should divorce our spouse. Okay? There are no biblical grounds for divorcing our spouse for abandoning our spouse on the sheer basis that he or she is an unbeliever, okay? Rather, 
we ought to love our spouse, our unbelieving spouse, with the love of Christ and, and pray that God might be pleased to do a great thing in our marriage by bringing them to faith. Okay, and the final question is, how can we guard ourselves in our spirit against the temptation to divorce our spouse? How can we guard ourselves in our spirit against the temptation to divorce our spouse? Let me tell you a quick little story. In the fall of 2010, it was my freshman year of Bible college in Minnesota, and uh, my roommate, Matt, who's a really awesome guy, super solid, and uh, he's a pastor now in Minneapolis. Matt was reading a book of the Bible that I had never read before, the book of the prophet Hosea, the first of the minor prophets, which we've been looking at. And Matt kept telling me, dude, you've got to read Hosea. You've got to read it. It's so good. And so during that Thanksgiving break, I remember I was hanging out at my aunt and uncle's house in a little town called Waconia, probably there just you know, doing some laundry or something, and, and I remember sitting downstairs on their couch and finally cracking open my Bible to the book of Hosea and then reading this heartbreaking story of a man, Hosea, who, who marries an adulterous woman named Gomer and has a son with her and then finds his worst nightmare coming true as Gomer is unfaithful to him and goes on to have two other kids with another man and gets herself into a situation where she becomes a slave. But then, instead of doing what I and any 21st century American would expect Hosea to do, which would be to realize that Gomer obviously wasn't the one and that he deserves better and that there's probably some great girl out there just waiting to meet him and that he should leave her immediately. Instead of doing that, Hosea does the most remarkable thing. He pursues her and he finds her in her desperate condition and he buys her out of slavery saying, Gomer, you are mine. Come home. And that touched me. It touched me just to imagine all of the emotions Hosea must have been feeling and all the questions he must have been asking and all the small deaths he must have been dying inside after being betrayed like that. But then for him to somehow remain steadfast and faithful to that promise he once made to her for better or for worse and to take her back and to love her still. That touched me. But what touched me more than anything was when I began to put the pieces of this story together and came to, to realize what the point of it really is. And that is that we, God's people, are like Gomer. Every one of us. And God is the faithful, pursuing partner like Hosea who chases us down even when we are faithless and rebellious and heartless and he finds us in our desperate condition and he speaks so tenderly to us saying, you are mine, come home. And that message, that message that, that when I commit spiritual adultery against God by chasing after sin and other lovers, God chases after me. 
and loves me still. That message broke my 18-year-old heart, but then built it back up again stronger than it ever was before because it was then for the first time in my life that I really began to grasp the concept of God's grace. That there exists an infinite chasm between what I deserve because of my sin and what I've received because of God's tender mercy. And so here's the answer to the question of of how we can guard ourselves and our spirit against the temptation to divorce our spouse. If God, who has every right to abandon us forever, because we have been unfaithful to him over and over and over and over and over, but in his grace does not abandon us, but chases us down, no matter how deep or dark that pit of sin becomes, he chases us down and he finds us there in that place and he speaks so tenderly to us saying, you are mine, come home. Then for us to abandon our spouse for infinitely more minuscule and minor infractions or worse, for no reason at all, to abandon our spouse would be to say, oh Lord, I love your grace I need your grace, but I refuse to give grace. And that is so hypocritical and sickening. I mean, just imagine if you held up a bank at gunpoint and you robbed them of all their cash and you even shot a few of the employees, but then you got caught, and for some reason, the bank and the employees decided to not press charges against you, but to show you grace. But then, you go home, and you find out that your teenager took 10 bucks out of your wallet, and you call the police and try to get him kicked out of your house. That's sick. You can't have that kind of grace but not be moved to give it yourself. And you can't enjoy the faithful love of God for you after all you've done, but then divorce your spouse for reasons that have no biblical grounds. And even then, even in a case where there are biblical grounds for divorce, to continue to love your spouse and show them grace, and and try to work it out, even through all the hurt of horrible betrayal that makes you feel like you've been dragged to hell and back. And trust me, Jesus can relate to those feelings. For couples who are able to do that by God's grace, there's, there's something inexpressibly beautiful about that, isn't there? And I think part of it is because it, it, it begins to show forth something of the profound depth of Christ's love for you and me. Amen? And so it's this deep and steadfast love of Jesus for his unfaithful bride that ought to move us to love our spouses faithfully, even when they hurt us, even when our love for them begins to grow cold, and especially when we are tempted by other lovers because we have promised ourselves to them 
as Christ has promised himself to us. So, there is a lot here for us this morning in Malachi's third wake-up call. And, and I know it probably feels like trying to drink from a fire hydrant to take it all in. But the gist of what Malachi is getting at is quite simple. And that is that the sin of unfaithfulness, whatever its form, the sin of unfaithfulness must be guarded against in here, in our spirit, and the weapon with which we must guard ourselves is ultimately an understanding of just how gracious God has been to us. Because it's his grace that broke Christ's body so that we might be joined to the body of Christ. And it's his grace that made us radically belong to one another. And it's his grace that is preparing us right now as a bride, a beautiful bride, adorned for her heavenly husband. And it's his grace that gave us spiritual sight when we were blind and spiritual hearing when we were deaf and spiritual life when we were dead and and made us idol-crushing worshipers for his name's sake. And it's his grace that chases us down and calls us back home even when we are faithless and rebellious and heartless. So my prayer is that this wake-up call will move us this morning to meditate upon the amazing grace that God has given to us and that in so doing, we would find our temptations being blown away like chaff before the wind and our love and care for the bride and body of Christ being deepened and our grip on Christ ever tightening as we become more and more aware of all the ways he is faithfully carrying us in his grace. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are a faithful God. You keep your promises to us. You keep covenant with us. Your heart never grows cold for us. Your love never fades for us. And we just stand in awe of you this morning because we know just how unfaithful we've been. We've been unfaithful to one another your covenant community, this covenant community here. We've been unfaithful to our spouses and we have not loved them as they ought to be loved. Lord, we've been unfaithful to you over and over and over, chasing after sin and other lovers, which which makes it all the more amazing that you, in your grace, love us still and love us fiercely and never stop chasing us down, Lord. Lord, I just pray that 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 reality would move us, would move our hearts to repentance this morning. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone out there feeling like Gomer or the Judean men this morning, 
Lord, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit right now, right now to call them back home and to assure them that they will be received so graciously and wrapped up in your arms and spoken so tenderly to because you love them deeply. And they need only to look to the cross to know it's true, Lord. They need only to look to the cross and the empty tomb. So Lord, we pray all these things for your glory alone. In the name of your son, Jesus, whom we love, amen. All right, well, thanks for joining us this morning. And uh, I just wanna say that uh, if there is anything any of you guys need over the next few weeks as we are not meeting in person, please do not hesitate to reach out to us either over phone or email or through um, Facebook or something. Please do not hesitate to reach out to us because we want to make sure that we know how you're doing and, and take care of you if we can. So anyways, I love you guys. Love you, church. And uh, we'll see you back here next week.